single-family housing starts, single-family permits, new home sales are all going to set record lows this year. We're at the bottom right now, and so anything, uh, really, we only have only, the only place we have to look is up. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today's Friday, November 18th, and that was Patrick Newport, a housing analyst with IHS Global Insight that you heard at the top. Doing his best, Jacob Goldstein. But you got the real Jacob Goldstein here. On the show today, true confessions of a financial advisor. A financial advisor who tells us how he got sucked into the boom and bust just like the rest of us, and he tells us what he learned from it. Uh, but first, Kestenbaum? Yeah? I'm going to give you the indicator. Oh, yeah, good. Today's Planet Money Indicator, 29. 29% of people with mortgages are underwater. This is according to the website Zillow. In other words, all these people, they owe more on their mortgage than their home is worth. Or put another way, these people, if they wanted to leave their house, get out of it, they would have to write a check to leave. Selling the house would not cover what they owe on it. This, of course, is a huge problem for lots of reasons. People who are underwater are much more likely to go into foreclosure. It also makes it harder for people to move, say, to find work. And this is still years into the housing bust, a big, big problem. We're going to take today to talk to one guy who was underwater and who, in a lot of ways, embodied the housing crisis. He wrote the bubble up and then he wrote it down. A lot of people bought more house than it turned out they could afford. But this particular guy, he was highly trained as a financial advisor. His name's Carl Richards. Sometimes he writes about financial stuff for the New York Times. Carl, he just recently went public with his own personal misfortunes. We brought him in to tell his story and how it changed him. Before we get to that, though, he told us this kind of funny story about how he got into the financial business. Yeah, it was June. <laughs> June of 95. A couple weeks after we got married, I came home. I was digging. I was working for a landscape company. I was the low man on the totem pole. So I was literally digging ditches at, at that point. <laughs> and my wife was like, look, I don't think that's a long-term career. Um, and I said, you know, it's just a job to work my way through school. She, so she started looking for other jobs. These were just, you know, like part-time jobs. I was taking a full load at school. And so we looked through the one ads and she found an ad. And I wish I, I wish I'd kept it, but... We were under the impression it was a security job, you know, some sort of security thing. Security, like like a like a rent a cop kind of thing. Or... Yeah, like bouncer, you know. And I'm I'm I've always fancied myself as a big strong guy, so I thought that'd be great. Went in to the temporary agency, I think it was Volt. Um, applied for this job and found out that it was a securities job, and it was at, at large one of the big. Um, it's actually Fidelity has a huge call center here in in uh, Salt Lake. And they narrowed it down to two of us and they came out and the interview person came out and said, you know, we've, we've, we can only hire one of you. And, you know, Carl, sorry, we've offered the job to this guy. And the guy turned to me and said, you know, I, I don't want it. You can have it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, Bound that's how greatness. I mean, yeah, it's pretty like people have made a big deal of like, oh, how could he be? But that was 15 years ago, right? Working my way through school, part-time job. So basically people would... People, if you have like a Fidelity brokerage account or retirement account and you want to have some basic question to ask and you call the 800 number, you answer. Yeah. And, and remember, like I have to keep reminding people, you know, this was 95. So remember, like Google Finance didn't exist. So like I would literally get, you know, the same guy would call every day at five o'clock and ask for 15 quotes. 
He just wanted to know, like, how did stock in Pfizer do today? Or how did stock in Microsoft yeah. do today? Am you I up or am I down? Am I that up was all down, he wanted yeah. to know from To me. a large degree, yeah. I was answering those calls. I got thrown on the tax gate, which was pretty funny. Um, every single phone call, you know, was you know, somebody asking me about some tax implication of something I'd never heard of. And every single phone call was like, please hold. I'd have to go research, come back with the answer. So that, that, was, the, that was the deal. Carl worked his way up. He got more training. He stopped having to put everyone on hold. And by 2003, he had his own clients. He was working for Merrill Lynch. He had three kids by this time. He had a fourth on the way. And he got an offer to go work for Merrill Lynch in Las Vegas. Vegas, baby, Vegas. Yeah, it really was at the time. You know, it was the heart of the boom. And he took the job and, and moved there. And he told us what it looked like when he got there. We lived in this uh, area of town that's sort of west of the Strip, up against the mountains, out near Red Rocks um, National Conservation Area. And the... I mean, you could almost see the the city. Well, you could. You could literally see the city expanding into the desert. You know, like boom, boom, boom. These new sort of rows of subdivisions. And you'd go to these, even when we were coming down to kind of visit to make this decision, we, we started going to a couple of these open houses of these new communities open up, and there would be lines of people. And, you know, these would be 300, 400, 500, $600,000 houses, and there would be lines of people younger than, you know, younger than we were. And, and and every new phase, the price would go up. And so that's kind of the feeling you got of like, wow, you know, these prices are increasing so fast, we may not be able to buy a house if we don't now. It was just like this train was leaving, and if you weren't on it, you were never going to get on. How much money were you making at the time, and how much were you looking to spend? I know my income was getting closer to six figures. It seems to me we started looking at like 350 and and. That sort of made sense to me for some reason. It's not like I went through some big calculation. It's just it made sense to me. We'd run the quick payment. We'd say, well, we can afford that. So that's where we started was 350 And we quickly, um, you know, quickly things, spy, you know, like, well, if you just can, you know, if you just spend 50000 more, you get this. And you just spend 100000 100, more, you get this. So we ended up buying a house for five seventy five for sale by owner. And you've got to remember, too, <laughs> these are is almost painful for me to recount because in hindsight these things are all blazingly obvious i mean we made and the reason i frankly the reason i told this story is we made and hopefully it came across in the way i wrote it was look these are my mistakes right we made we made mistakes and they look blazingly obvious in the in looking back but at the time you it made sense and everywhere you looked you were reinforced with the idea and it was talked about openly that you buy as much house as you possibly can because the thing is just going up in value right there was this interesting shift and i was uncomfortable with it did it anyway this interesting shift of this isn't necessarily you know you're it's silly to view this as just a home right this is also one of the best opportunities to increase your net worth you could ever have, right? Because these things are growing. It's tax-free, right? You sell it two years later. You don't have to pay taxes. You can move it into a new house. Um, You know, housing prices were going up. My income was going up. Like, everything was going the right way, which leads you to sort of another classic mistake, which is sort of projecting the recent past into the future infinitely, right? What was that house like? A single story, uh, 3,400 square feet, smallest model in the neighborhood, a uh, pretty unique neighborhood in, in Las Vegas. It was on, like sort of uh, um, multiple subdivisions all behind one big, you know, everything in Vegas is sort of fenced off, right? Like gated communities everywhere. 
And this was like four communities behind one big gate. So there was lots of people surrounded by a central park. The park, the green space, we called it, went under most of the roads to get to the kids' school, the elementary school. So it was really, really cool, really fun place for the kids. So they could Um, walk to school like underneath the roads on these green pathways or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, along the pass, there were, uh, like, the tortoise and the hare statues. Like, like it was almost a little surreal, frankly, looking back on it. The tortoise and the hare, big, you know, big tortoise, a big hare. You know, like, as they walked to their public elementary school, which was luckily one of the better schools in the in the county, for sure. Things are going really well, so well that Carl decides he's going to leave Merrill Lynch, and he's going to do that thing that makes the economy grow. He's going to start his own company. And, of course, he needs some money to do that. And remember, we're still in the boom here. So his house, it's already increased in value. So get that money. He does what everybody else does. He takes out a second loan on his house. A second loan. And for a while, things are going well. The kid's got a great school to go to. He's getting new clients. He can make his payments. And then things are not going so well. The market starts to turn pretty abruptly. And I know it's so it's so easy and I get so frustrated with it. Like it's so easy to look back. Oh, we should have known. Yeah, I know we all should have known. But the reality is go back. I mean, there weren't a lot of people sounding alarm bells. Right? I mean, I, I know there were some. I know there were some. But most of us were convinced nobody really wanted to be the person at the party that said, hey, this thing's about to end. So Right. Income's going up. Suddenly things start to slow and they slow pretty rapidly. Right. Remember late, late, um, late 08, you know, the whole sort of Lehman AIG thing starts to unravel. And then just and I I mean, seriously, at this point, I had a sense that things were bad. Right. Like and I remember being on bike rides with friends that were smart real estate folks and real estate agents who, and one particularly who was a, a real estate agent, but one of the, you know, the, one of the relatively rare real estate agents that really cared about the value of the investment he was helping his client make rather than just the commission. And he said to me, you know, we were both talking like, wow, this will come back. And I remember both looking at each other and going, what if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? And, 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 and that was the first time where I was like, wow, what? But if it doesn't, and, and then too, there was still this sense of like, well, we live in, you know, one of the most desirable neighborhoods. It's, it's a nice neighborhood. We're, we got the tortoise and the hare. Yeah. Well, we, it turns we out everybody in your neighborhood was the hare. <laughs> of course, we, we have the tortoise and the You're always trying to paint this like, we'll be immune. So the way Carl's business works, he gets paid based on how much money his clients have invested. So when the whole stock market goes down, by and large, Carl's income goes down. His family tries to cut back on everything they can cut back on. They cut back on trips. They went from two cars down to one car with four kids. But it was not enough. They still have too much house. And finally, a friend advised him to do something he'd been avoiding, really trying not to do at all costs. His friend says to him, you got to just stop paying your mortgage. And I remember being sort of like, are you really like that's that's and at the same time like relieve that maybe wait a second maybe there's a way this could work this wasn't a strategic decision at this point it was like we well it's it's hard to say we had no choice because i guess we could have figured out how to borrow money from somebody else i i don't at this point it felt like the only choice i called the bank you're current we can't work with you i say to the bank and they literally said to me look the department that works with people is in sort of think of it as another building. Your file will not move over to that building if you're current. Like there's nobody to talk to. So we we stopped, you know, and that 
was um uh that was ins- that that was painful you know i'm just terrified of my kids opening the you know the mail and or answering the phone and it's one of those collection mortgage police you know who are those people are I remember thinking how you know how are we ever going to get out of this and um we work through initially a modification process with the bank uh the modification offer was uh it wasn't going to work. There's no way. Plus, we needed to move. So in the middle of that, we were trying every angle. Could we stay here? Could we rent the house? Slowly, we run out of bullets, if you will. And all that's left is, look, will you work with us on a short sale? You sold the house for, for what? Hundreds of thousands of dollars less than you owed the bank. Yep. And Hundreds you... being like between two and three. And did that screw up your credit? I mean, is that a kind of default? Yeah. Yes. It's, it, it shows up as a settled for less than the amount owed. So I feel like there are a lot of people uh, in America right now who are in a situation not so different from yours. H- how are you doing now, years years after this? Are you still you're still digging out? Yeah, I mean it's sixteen. What is it? Sixteen months. You know, it was it was June of oh, of two thousand ten. So yeah, we're still digging out. I mean, my business is good. Um, we qualified for a to get a, a modest car loan um, and still still digging out. I mean, we're getting close, but still digging out. Couldn't buy a house right now if if, if we wanted to. So you're a, you're a parent of, of four, right? I feel like Correct. Yeah. as a parent, you're always trying to pass on your like life lessons. Like I just learned this, like here, yeah. you got to yeah. know this. What do you, what have you, <laughs> how do you explain this whole thing to them? What do you tell them? One thing I've decided I don't know if I'm right about this or not, but it feels right to me for us um, is our daughters that are 12, 14 and 12, almost 13 now. And our 10 year old son, as soon as, you know, maybe another year or two, uh, we're going to involve them much more in the family financial decisions. We're going to help have them understand these trade offs and, you know, why maybe we don't want to go on that vacation so we can fund that college account. Or, I mean, really, I've decided I, I may be wrong. My kids knew that was going on. The kids know. And my thought is, look, I, I don't know that you can be too open. Um, so that's the lesson I'm going to pass on to them is we're just going to walk through the family finances, help them contribute to the family finance discussion and decide that may, there may not be anything we should hide. I mean, so I, and I, again, I don't know where that line is. Maybe there are some things that they don't need to know, but um, that's, that's what we're going we're gonna to talk to them about. So his kids are one thing, David, but, you know, Carl is a financial advisor. So, of course, we asked him, what, what does this whole thing, this whole experience say about the basic nature of his profession, the basic idea of getting paid to give financial advice? Because clearly, you know, he was as surprised by what happened as everybody else. He said quite candidly, yeah, this episode, it did change things for him. He says, actually, a lot of what he's learned in general is from making mistakes, the same mistakes that he now goes around trying to help other people avoid. One of the things I've found myself doing much more recently is that I used to spend a lot of time focused on the probability of a certain event happening. So if you think about maybe failure, right, the probability of this not working and, you know, maybe it's 5%. Or you set this sort of Robin Ru- Robert Rubin sort of idea of like you set the probability at 5%. Um, now, instead of just focusing on the probability of an event, I find myself focusing on the consequence. And so, right, if it's a 5% chance, but if it happens, you die. Right? I'm, not, I'm no longer saying, well, it's only a 5%. I'm, I'm now saying, but I would die. 
And, and I think that is the approach. I know that's changed in the advice I give. And I know it's something that's changed in the way we are handling things now. And I hope that continues for a long time. I mean, I, I hope this is, and I've said this generally, I hope this lesson seared and sort of burned into all of us that, that you know, there's nothing wrong with taking risks, but let's, let's understand the implications of those decisions and, and, and the impact, not just the probability. It's always darkest before the We will link to Carl's New York Times story on our blog at npr.org slash money. Also, check out our colleague Adam Davidson's column. It's going to run this Sunday in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. It's about this weird habit we have in America where we live pretty frugally for 11 months, and then we spend, spend, spend for this other month. It's always December for some reason. If you know why that may be, you can email <laughs> us at planetmoney at npr.org. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm Jacob Goldstein. I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.